This podcast is brought to you by HealthCareInfoSecurity.com, the leading online publication for risk management and security professionals within the healthcare industry. This is Howard Anderson, news editor at Information Security Media Group. Today we're talking to information security consultant Tom Walsh about seven indicators for determining whether your information security program is real or a fantasy. Thanks for joining us today, Tom. Thank you, Howard. At the upcoming HIMSS conference, you're a presenter at a privacy and security workshop. Can you give us a brief overview of the content of that workshop? Yes, sir. And also, Howard, I'll talk a little bit about who will be joining me at that uh, workshop. Uh, Our other speakers will include uh, Lisa Gallagher. She's Senior Director of Privacy and Security for HIMSS. She's going to talk about legislative and regulatory updates. Bill Spooner, who is our, the Senior Vice President and Chief Information Officer of Sharp Healthcare in San Diego, will be joining the workshop for the first time. And what Bill will be talking about is some of the real-world challenges from a CIO's point of view. One of the other uh, presenters who's returning from last year's workshop is Terrell Herzig. Terrell works for um, University of Alabama, Birmingham. He's their HIPAA security officer, and he's also for the health system, for UAB Health System. He's their data security officer. And then, of course, I'll be the kind of the main facilitator of this workshop. And in the workshop, one of the things we're going to talk about are how can we identify if we have a good, solid program. So we're talking about seven indicators that would tell us whether our program is for real. Let's go over each of the seven indicators then, Tom. Your first indicator is conducting or updating a risk analysis. Please explain why that's such an important step. Okay, well, fundamentally, risk analysis is at the core of any good information security program. Obviously, no business runs risk-free, and therefore it's important for organizations to assess what risk they have and then determine what are the appropriate safeguards and controls they need to apply to reduce their risk to some acceptable level. Now, interesting, in the proposed HIPAA security rule that came out in August of 1998, they listed all of the security standards and implementation specifications in an alphabetical order. But in the final HIPAA security rule that was released nine years ago in February 2003, the authors of the rule listed the standards and implementation specifications in order of what they thought were the priority. I say this because the very first implementation specification is risk analysis, and the second one is risk management. Well, let's fast forward to today. Many organizations are working for their meaningful use incentive money, and there's only one criteria, and that's number 15, for stage one meaningful use that pertains to information security and its risk analysis. So obviously this is a very important one. I've also done some work lately with state organizations that are trying to reach out to small and rural clinics to help them with meaningful use. And what I find is many are um, pretty clueless when it comes to the HIPAA security rule. They have no idea they were supposed to meet those standards. And many of them, of course, are struggling with how to conduct a risk analysis. So it is something that's very important, but yet not a lot of people got a good handle on it. So during the workshop, I'm going to make sure we go through the specific steps 
of what it takes to do a true risk analysis. Your second indicator is securing mobile devices and portable media. Is that because so many breaches have involved these? Absolutely. Uh, the loss or theft of mobile devices and portable media comprises the greatest category or percentage of the breaches affecting over 500 patients that have been reported to the Department of Health and Human Services on their website. Uh, the challenge we face today is an increasing demand to share patient information in a mobile environment. For many organizations today, mobile devices such as smartphones and iPads are personally owned. Now, getting our users to secure their personally owned device is tough. It's a technical issue as well as a people issue. And as far as adding any additional security controls, people also always perceive this as being some kind of a hassle. They don't understand what the overall impact would be if that device is lost or stolen with PHI on it. So um, in the workshop, we'll talk about some of the challenges, like getting people to use either some form of a password, a PIN, or some other form of authentication just to turn the device on, and then using some kind of an inactivity timeout, you know, like 10 minutes of it goes to a sleep mode where, once again, you'll have to authenticate to get it going. I've already heard that there's users out there looking for apps to circumvent their organization's mandatory security controls. So, yeah, there's an app for that. Also, think about this for just a moment, email. Within most healthcare organizations, they allow internal email to contain PHI because they figure it's secure. It's in their own email system. However, when somebody sends you an email and you're syncing it up with your smartphone or your iPad, you could be out of the office. You could be somewhere where you're not in a secure environment and a copy of that message may reside on or, or if you send an attachment, that could reside on the uh, smartphone or the iPad. So that's where we put ourselves into risk. Okay, your third indicator is managing business associate contracts and other arrangements. What are the key steps here? Well, the key steps, of course, is making sure that your business associates are securing the PHI that you share with them. 22% of all the reported breaches affecting over 500 patients were caused by business associates. And when a business associate breaches this data, it, when it gets listed, the breach gets listed on the Health and Human Services website, it's always listed with the covered entity's name first, then the business associate. So obviously many business associates aren't doing their part to protect the PHI the way there should be. Uh, and this really should be no surprise. Uh, as you know, many um, covered entities aren't doing much these days to validate that their business associates are, in fact, securing the data. So one of the things in the workshop we'll talk about is how can we get some reasonable assurance then from our business associates? What can we do? What works? What doesn't work? Uh, again, an exchange of ideas here to see what's going on. I also will point out to the audience that most of the cyber insurance companies today don't cover a breach if it's caused by a business associate. So uh, that's something that we really need to keep in mind as far as uh, securing it. Your fourth indicator is maintaining high availability and resiliency. Can you explain that briefly, please? 
our dependency on electronic systems has increased, as you know. And for a long time in healthcare, we always had the default, well, we'll just go back to paper. But this is becoming uh, less of an option, especially when there is no paper record. I also find today that patients and just people in general are growing less tolerant to the excuse our computers are down. Uh, patient care definitely can suffer when computerized systems are down. I'm aware of a several cases that happened um, just last year where, especially in a specialty clinic, some of the physicians were refusing to treat patients when their electronic medical record was down. Now, this is interesting because their concern was the legal liability for malpractice if they were treating a patient without their medical information readily available to them. So, you know, certain clinics, obviously family practice, uh, you're probably less of a risk, but in some of these clinics, it's, it's very important that they have access to the data. Now, what I find in a lot of organizations today is that their disaster recovery and availability strategies haven't kept pace with business needs. For example, a lot of times when I talk to IT departments and I ask them about their backups, they say, oh, yeah, we make daily backups. But then when I go out and talk to the managers and directors in the departments who depend upon these systems to get their work done, and I say, okay, so we got daily backups. If the system crashes and they restore it from backups, are you okay with the potential loss of an entire day's worth of work? And most cases, the directors and managers say, no, that's not acceptable. I mean, think about this. If you do the backups at night, which is one most of them, hospitals and other organizations do backups, you run all day long and then it crashes late in the day and you restore from backup, you've lost, you know, one to two shifts worth of data. And going back to all your nurses and saying, can you remember everything you did? Yeah, could you go ahead and rechart that for us? So I think that's that's uh, an issue that needs to be addressed. I also mentioned earlier in, when we were talking about risk analysis that no business runs risk-free. And when bad things happen, you know, an organization needs to be able to recover quickly. And this is especially important during any kind of a regional disaster, such as a storm, an earthquake, a tornado. People depend upon hospitals and physicians to provide aid, and part of that is getting access to it. Your fifth indicator is having a good plan for responding to reported incidents and handling breach notification. Why is that crucial to an information security program? It's crucial because nobody's perfect. Everybody's going to have some kind of an incident at some point. Going with this thought of it'll never happen to us is not going to work these days. So when there is a breach an organization has to have some type of a systematic approach. I mean, if you've read the Federal Breach Notification Rule for Healthcare, you realize there are many steps that have to be followed. And one of the most important of those steps is determining if there is a significant risk of harm to the patient or the individual. So all organizations, whether it's a covered entity or a business associate, need to have a policy for reporting incidents and potential breaches and a systematic response uh, procedures for those. Also, many states now have their own breach notification regulations. And in some cases, such as California, those 
regulations are more restrictive than the federal breach notification rule. So having a well-defined systematic approach for any kind of a breach or incident is very important for covered entities as well as business associates. Your sixth indicator is conducting a security awareness and training program. What are one or two of the key elements of such a program? Okay, some of the key elements of a good security awareness program will be a, a training initially when we bring on our new hires through some kind of new hire orientation, and then ongoing awareness and training. You know, our greatest threat to patient privacy or information security is really people. And so the best way to address this threat is through some kind of ongoing awareness and training. I think, you know, most people want to do the right thing, and sometimes they just don't know what the right thing is. If you ever look in just a typical community-based hospital and ask to see all their policies, you'll be overwhelmed by how many there are. There's no way any one individual can know everything that's in all those policy manuals. And really, who has the time to read them? And even if you did get through it all, uh, how would you know, you know, how would you retain all this stuff? So truly what works the best, um, Howard, is through some kind of ongoing awareness where we keep the key things top of mind to our folks so that they understand uh, what causes incidents and breaches and what they need to do and why they're doing it. It's, it's more than just telling them what they need to do. It's explaining what the consequences possibly could be to the organization, and to the individuals. When you consider that many privacy breaches and information security incidents are caused by carelessness, an effective training and awareness program could reduce those acts of carelessness. It's a no-brainer. So that's why uh, awareness and training are so important. Finally, you say evaluating compliance is an essential component. What are the most important steps in evaluating compliance with federal as well as state regulations, do you think? The key steps here is to know what's required and then um, evaluating what you're doing to meet those requirements. In the HIPAA security rule itself, it defines what's called evaluation. It's a required standard, and it says it's the uh, technical and non-technical review of your safeguards and controls. So in a sense, what you're doing is you may be conducting sort of a mock audit and you're trying to identify your gaps to compliance or you may you know, be ad- try to also identify any new threats or vulnerabilities that you didn't address in your risk analysis and then take the necessary steps to reduce your risk. And, you know, as far as security goes, any safeguards and controls should be first based upon risk and then secondly should be based upon compliance. Now, if this doesn't make good business sense or anything else, maybe this next thing will scare you into doing it, and that is the Department of Health and Human Services uh, executed a contract with the large firm KPMG, and they're going to be conducting 150 security audits between November 2011 and December 31st, 2012. Now, while your odds of getting selected for a random audit may be low, if an organization has a breach, 
it's sure to trigger at a minimum an investigation from the Office for Civil Rights and even possibly a full-blown audit. So it's very important to be prepared for those and know what is required. Also, again, beyond HIPAA, there are some state regulations. Now, beyond state requirements, beyond the federal requirements, we also have industry requirements, such as the Payment Card Industry Data Security Standard, or PCI DSS, as many people call it. And this, I find, is particularly important, as many hospitals today are depending upon their websites for credit card transactions, for online credit card transactions to do things like online bill paying, donations to their foundation, uh, class registration for their community outreach programs, and for buying gifts through their gift shop for some of the inpatients. And many organizations today have not really looked in, in any detail as to how they're complying with the payment card industry data security standards. So compliance is a big area that we need to make sure we're addressing and a good, solid information security program will take that into consideration. Well, thanks very much. We've been talking today with Tom Walsh, president of Tom Walsh Consulting. This is Howard Anderson. Thank you so very much for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by healthcareinfosecurity.com. For more interviews, breaking news, research, and educational webinars, please visit www.healthcareinfosecurity.com.